Please turn in your Gospels to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. John 17, 20 through 26. But I'd like to start by quoting to you the most commonly told lie in the church. Here it is. I'll pray for you. Now, it is not a malicious lie. But it is an untruth, nevertheless, because we tell people that we're going to pray for them, and we simply don't. And people are unprayed for when we don't pray for them. And that is a very serious matter, to be unprayed for. Now, the older, it's better, by the way, just to pray right then and there for people. If you're forgetful like me, uh, it's great just to bow your head and pray. But the older I get, the more I see the value of being prayed for. And the more I value and, and kind of covet the prayers of other people and not just myself. And I wonder if that's where you are as well. I wonder if we've gotten more to the place where we know that we can't handle this life alone, that we're going to need this thing called prayer. And we don't always know how to pray and we're not always as vigilant as we could be in prayer. And so we're going to ask other people to join in with us and and lift us before the throne of grace. Prayer is such a mystery, but prayer is so powerful and a big part of how God's kingdom goes forward in this world, a big part of how Christ is formed in our life and, and really what our experience of life will be and who we will be to other people is determined by prayer. And of course, even the way events work out somehow under his sovereignty, prayer Who is Jesus? Why is he relevant? We've been learning a lot about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in these several weeks. But this morning we learned that Jesus is our prayer warrior. Jesus prays for us. Jesus is our intercessor. Now there's a good Bible word that we don't use very often anymore. Intercessor. What is an intercessor? Intercession is defined as, quote, the act of petitioning God or praying on behalf of another person or group. Intercession simply means to stand in the gap between somebody and God and and lift them up, not as their Savior, but just as somebody who is praying either in addition to the prayers of another person or in lieu of the prayers of another person. There's a sense of urgency and a sense of belief in God when you're an intercessor as you're praying for the Lord to work in the lives of other people. Don't you want people praying like that for you? You know? Lord Jan needs whatever. I don't know what you need right now, Jan, but Lord Jan needs this in her life right now. I pray that you would grant Jan this thing or or whatever in her life right now. Wouldn't you love to have people praying like that for you, Jan? I'm praying for you is actually one of the most significant things a human being can ever tell you because this world finally... And ultimately is a spiritual world that's going to end up ultimately in a place called heaven and the new heavens and new earth and everything you see will disappear. It's all about what God is doing in and through our lives, in and through his church. And so prayer becomes so important. I'm praying for you is one of the most wonderful things and significant things you can tell another person. John 17 is... Important when you're looking at prayer because it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. If you want to look at Jesus' prayers, 
then you're going to need to look at John 17 by far and away the longest. And, and the content of this prayer is just beautiful. And what we see is that Jesus is an intercessor for his disciples and for some other people as well. It starts out in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus prays for himself. And the reason he's praying for himself is he's about to go to the cross and there's this mission that he has come to fulfill and that God has sent him to the world and and he has had union and fellowship with God. By the way, Jesus laid aside uh, a kind of glory. He emptied himself. We read in Philippians 2. And he prayed to the Father. Jesus had an incredible prayer life. That's hard to understand. I realize how the second person of God could empty himself and actually pray, but that's what happened because he became like us in every way, yet without sin. And so Jesus is praying to the Father about this union that he has, the love between them, the mission as he's about to go to the cross. He's about to leave his disciples, his followers behind. And so then in verses 6 through 19 is a whole section where he is praying for his followers. I'm talking about these people who've walked with him for three years. And you'll just have to learn. It's a beautiful, very concerned prayer, including that that famous little part, I pray that not that you take them out of the world, but that you will be with them while they're in the world. In other words, they're going to go through hard times. And I'm not praying that you, you up and over them over all hard times, but I'm praying, Father, that you'll be with them in the world and you'll protect them. And then... In verses 20 through 26, you know who he prays for? You. That's who he prays for. He prays for you and me. And I'd like to read our text. This is, this is, just be touched. You are about to hear with your ears the Son of God pray for you before he went to the cross. My prayer is not for them alone, them meaning those who have been with me, my disciples. I also pray for those who will believe in me because of their message. All through history, we're direct descendants of the apostles and believers in a lineage in the apostolic message of Jesus. I also pray for all those who will believe in me through their message us, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved and have loved them as much as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know me, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them.
Here's your little guiding sentence for the day. Jesus prays for us to be one so his love and glory can be revealed. Jesus prays for us to be one, to be unified, so his love and glory will be revealed. And just basically two things I want to look at, and that is our unity reveals his love and our unity reveals his glory. And all this we learn through the intercessory prayer for what you will see will become one of the very most important things that we will ever have. And that is unity. First is our unity reveals his love. My prayer is not for them only, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message that all of them may be one father as you and I are in you are in me and I am in you. They may 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 they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and has, have loved them as much as you have loved me. How much does Jesus love us? Only as much as he loves, or the, excuse me, how much does the Father love us? Only as much as he loves Jesus, the Son of God. It's really interesting that this unity shows us a couple of things. It shows us the, the love of, of the, the Father and the Son. It, it kind of shows us the love of the Trinity, that the love and unity that we share is actually modeled by God himself. Jesus talks about I and you and you and me, that I've loved you, that you've loved me. I've shown glory. I've shown love. I'll be in them. And so there's this this notion of of incredible unity. I mean, there's no disunity in the, the Godhead. There's no jealousy in the Godhead. There's no strife in the Godhead. There's no minor disagreements in the Godhead. But perfect love and unity... And Jesus is saying, Father, like you and I have unity and love, I pray that they would have love. That's as real as the love that we have. In fact, that they would have our love. But it not not only reveals the love of the Trinity, it reveals the love of the gospel. Because if you look at verses 21 and 23, and then verses 26 as well, what you keep finding out is... So people will know that you sent me. That all of this love, unity, all that God wants to do in our life is is in relation to the mission that Jesus has come to do. And what is Jesus' mission? Why did the Father send Jesus? So he could die on the cross to take the punishment in our place for our sins and rise from the dead and, and give us a new life and so that others might believe through the message of the apostles, even people in Mississippi in 2010. His mission was the cross and, and Jesus prayed this just before the cross and what he's focused on is the, the completion of his mission. And basically this love that he's talking about in terms of his mission goes like this. I'm going to have to die for them to live. I'm going to have to die for them to live. Now, what is this unity in the gospel that Jesus is talking about? People get real nervous when you start talking about unity. You know, they start thinking about um, ecumenicalism 
is the big word, which shouldn't really be a bad word, but it's kind of historically become a bad word to Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Uh, ecumenism, it, it means kind of the, the, the all-togetherness of the church. It's a beautiful word, but the reason people get nervous is because there's all these various beliefs, and some of them, for instance, are not even believed that Jesus is the Son of God. Not even believe that Jesus did miracles. And there are people over here that do not believe the Word of God is the actual revelation of God Himself. Authoritative, inerrant. And so, and so to kind of mail throw all that together will, will leave you with something watered down is the, the worry of this unity. And so our unity is not just a big you know, hands, kumbaya rally, where we just hold hands. Uh, the unity really is around Jesus, his, his uh, mission. Why he was sent into the world, as Jesus says in, in John chapter 17. That's what our unity is around. The, Jesus identified by his mission and, and identified here also as, as the, the son of God. Um, it is certainly unity in believing the truth. It is not unity among all religious people, Christian or not. It's not unity among all people who call themselves Christian but disown Jesus himself. Our unity is certainly sharing in, in a passion for the kingdom of God to go forward on this earth. But it is not a uniformity of style. We don't all have to look the same. We don't all have to worship the same. We don't all have to disciple the same. We don't all have to evangelize the same. To be unified in Jesus. And it is certainly not getting everybody under one church leader in the world. Because that's the concern that it's watered down. And by the way, every time we hear a sermon on Christian unity, rightly so, but not as rightly, and, and the indignation is not fully deserved. Denominations are evil. There ought to be just one church in the world under one leader in the world. Well, let me tell you something. There used to be one church in the world. And it went south. And there were people in that church that tried to reform it. And it refused to be reformed. And in 1517, and there were always faithful people within that church with splinters and fractures, but in 1517, and as the result of not willing to be reformed, those protesting people came out because they actually stood on the principles of Scripture. Now, is that divisive? Is that wrong? Maybe denominations aren't bad. Denominations are bad in the sense that we have these petty things with one another, and we'll get into that in a minute. But they're not necessarily inherently bad if we could work together. Maybe, maybe they reveal different dimensions of the glory and beauty of Christ. Think about the Presbyterians. They, they reveal a kind of cerebral dimension. The, the Pentecostals reveal a kind of, of passionate heart dimension of the faith, right? Maybe we could be one and actually celebrate some differences and not, and not demand that we all be one. Because it's not going to happen until we're all one in the new Jerusalem. No, 
all that stuff that you we need we need to get rid of all the denominations. How do you even do that? Who are you gonna put in charge? I mean, let's get real. All that is not the primary focus of, of Jesus in John 17. Here, unity is about living out this love together as believers in Jesus. It's not just talking about what we believe. It's not just an affirmation of faith. It literally goes beyond the belief in John chapter 17, it includes the belief of Jesus' identity as, as a part of the Trinity and His identity in terms of His mission and the cross. No, no joke. But it goes beyond belief. It is, it is about living the power of the gospel together. The gospel is Jesus' love unto His own death so we might live. That's the gospel. Jesus' love, the love of God unto His own death sacrificially so we might live. And that is why, dear people, unity is so amazing to the world. Because if we're going to be unified as people who know and love Jesus, we've got to give to get along. We've got to die to our stuff that is secondary to lift up the primary and lift up other people higher than ourselves. It, basically, what we're saying is, is that unity is simply the gospel in action. It's simply the maturity to put away secondary matters to unify around the true identity of Jesus as the second person of God and His mission and the kingdom in terms of the cross. Basically, it's you saying to your brother or sister, I give to you. I die to me. That's the gospel lived out. In his ministry, Jesus did miracles or the other name for them in the New Testament is signs. Don't you find that an interesting name for miracles? Signs? What does that mean? Well, it means like a road sign. It means like any sign. It means an indication, a sign of his true identity. These are signs that he really is who he is. What Jesus is saying is that our unity is now the greatest sign and will be the basis by which the world will be confounded that we don't live in perpetual pettiness and selfishness and live out the gospel in action together even when we have differences. Isn't that wonderful? Think about the power in this. Think how counterintuitive is living out the gospel. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. That you affirm all the same secondary matters of doctrine. No. That you make fun of other people because they're not just like you. No. By this all men will know that you are my true disciples if you love one another. Love is the sign. Love is what the unity 
is about. I give to you, I die to me for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Look, here's a scary thought. We are the chief form of advertising that Jesus Christ has in this world? (laughs) Congratulations. You have been appointed. We have been appointed Jesus Advertising Agency to show the world not only what we affirm, but whether or not the gospel is true. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That's a sobering thought. That is exactly what Jesus is praying will happen in John 17. When we don't get along because of secondary issues or style issues, the world scoffs. They don't even know the primary issues. And they find our secondary issues to be absolute stupidity to divide over. And the world at that point would be right. Would be right. Guy Richardson, the president of RTS Jackson, told me an illustration about four weeks ago in his, his kitchen one night after a, uh, a C.S. Lewis class that we've been trying to attend. It's been wonderful, by the way. Uh, and so I had to look it up, though, because it's kind of involved, but it's a, it's a great illustration. We were chuckling about these things that divide because of the joke, but really it's kind of, it's funny, but it's sad. So there are these two men sitting next to one another on an airplane. You know, you've had this experience. And one of them's reading a book. And the other one realizes that it's a Christian book. And so he says to the man, he says, what are you reading? He says, I'm reading a book called The History of the Christian Church. The other man says, are you a Christian? He says, I am a Christian. The man says, me too. The other man excitedly says, are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? He says, I'm a Protestant. The man says, me too. (laughs) He says, are you an Episcopalian, a Presbyterian, or a Baptist? He says, well, I'm a Baptist. He says, me too. He's getting more and more excited. They have a lot in common. He says, well, are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you an original Baptist Church of God or a Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. (coughs) Me too. (laughs) Are you a Reformed Baptist Church of God, Old Light, 1879, or a Reformed Baptist Church of God, New Light, 1915? Well, I'm a Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1950, 1915. Will you die then, you heretic scum? We have nothing to talk about. We laugh. But somewhere under that laughter, something is horribly wrong. In terms of Jesus' high priestly prayer for unity, based on his true identity as the second person of God and his mission of the cross and the kingdom. I remember in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I had a fight one day at lunch with the local Bible church pastor. He was one brand of theology. I was another. I was a covenant theologian. He wasn't. 
And we were both young and right out of seminary. I was kind of brash. And we literally got into an argument over lunch. And we didn't speak to each other for nine months. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't, you know, we just didn't see each other. It wasn't like I, you know, turned my face when he walked down the street or something. Tuscaloosa is a pretty small town. I'd still say, hey, but we didn't talk, really, for nine months. And God really began to get to me about this. And I prayed. And, and I'll never forget the day I realized that I needed to go to him and apologize, not for my doctrine, because it's what I believe, but for my attitude about the doctrine and how covenant and dispensational theology is a secondary matter underneath who Jesus is. And so, uh, little beknownst to me, he had undergone the same conviction. So he was a Christian too. And uh, so we, we established a lunch together. We were in a little Mexican restaurant right there on Rice Mine Road. I can see it right now in my head in Tuscaloosa. And it was one of those things where I said, I need to tell you something. God has convicted me. And, I need, and he said, no, no, I want to tell you first. He said, I'm so sorry I was such a jerk. I said, no, that's what I want to tell you. And he said to me, he said, look. Are we serious about this thing? He said, you know, up at the charismatic church right up the road, they're having a meeting with some charismatic pastors right now. After lunch, let's just get in our car. Let's drive up there, the Presbyterian, the Dispensational Bible Church, and let's join the charismatics in their, in their meeting. And let's tell them that we want to form a, a, a wider association than just the charismatics or just the Presbyterians or just the justice. <clears throat> so we went up to this church. i never forget, we're in the middle of this prayer meeting. And uh, it was not exactly like the ones I was used to. <clears throat> it was very high volume. And uh, there were, there were terms, terminology being used that, uh, that I wasn't quite uh, uh, up to speed on. But I'll never forget this, this one pastor named Bobby got, stood on top of a chair. And he, he screamed with, with, his, with all his might. He screamed, there's a devil in the room. <laughs> and my friend Fred, the dispensational pastor, leaned over. He goes, it's you, Joseph. <laughs> he knows. He senses you're a Presbyterian. <laughs> but you know what? We decided not to run. And what came out of that was called the pastor's prayer movement. Sixty pastors broke the color barrier in evangelical church for the first time. And from then on out, every week, we gathered for prayer for the kingdom and the true identity of Jesus you know what I think? I think the more secular the world gets and the more pressure there is on real Christianity, the more we're just going to have to put down our secondary differences. I didn't say we couldn't believe them in our churches. But the more we're going to have to begin to ask for that prayer of Jesus to be more and more true in our hearts. And people will see the gospel in action. I give to you, I die to me, my beloved Pentecostal pastor standing on a chair, and we are one. Can't we disagree on lesser things and maybe less disagreeably? I don't know who you are out there when you represent Jesus in Highlands. I sure hope you're not an arrogant person because you don't have permission from the session of this church to be such. And you certainly don't have permission from our great high priest, Jesus Christ, to be that. I mean, can't we unite around the essentials while believing our secondary matters through the study of the scriptures within our own church? Can't we unite and love each other more broadly as believers 
We must. And I'm going to tell you something. It's the only real Christian life, finally. And, and, and it is the primary way, Jesus says, that the world will know that he is the Son of God and the Savior. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you've loved me. You see, it's that complete unity that will let the world know the true identity of Jesus. Look, that's where I would like to be. And I, I confess to you, my attitude is not always where it needs to be. That is where we want our church to be. We want to be reformed. We want to believe, we want to teach the truth in our church as we believe the scriptures teach it. We're not, I don't mean that. But we want to be generous with other believers and maintain the unity that Jesus has already given us. We know we sacrifice and, and give it away. Uh, it's exciting because it's real. And this is what is filled with the, the presence of God and filled with the power of God. And it's elemental for the cerebral Presbyterians. Jesus would say, this is elemental. This is basic Christianity in action because this is the gospel in action. So our unity reveals the love of God in the Trinity and in the cross and in Jesus' Jesus' mission. But secondly, our unity reveals his glory. Look at verse 24. This is one of the great verses of the Bible. In fact, one one of the things I learned in my study is that John Knox, the from one of the commentaries, John Knox, the, the father of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, or the Presbyterian Church for that matter, um, when he was dying, wanted this verse read to him. There were three verses every day, but this was the last verse he asked for this verse to be read to him on his deathbed. And here it is. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. You can understand why John Knox would, would read that on his deathbed. I want you to be with me and to see my glory because he's about to be with his Savior and see his glory. But again, notice it's the glory that you gave me before the creation of the world. And notice that last little part, because you loved me. You know, this, it's this, this trinity unity again. 25, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and I have, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have given for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Isn't this amazing? God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. He wants us to see his glory. Now, we with unveiled faces behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But now we see through a glass darkly, too. But then face to face. Meaning the glory of, that we see of Jesus Christ is, is no less than his glory. It's just, we're just not able to see the full and perceive the full glory of King Jesus. Here's an interesting idea. Humans, that'd be you and me, humans, flesh, before the throne of God himself. 
What business does a human being have standing before the throne of God in heaven? No business. Except for Jesus' mission and his accomplishment of redemption. Lord, I I want them to be with me where I am and to show them my glory. But here's the deal, people. You won't be alone there. (laughs) And you're not going to be... Don't think of the throne of God and you alone standing before the throne of God as if there's nobody else in heaven but you. You understand, Jesus is talking about the church and the unity. I want them to be with me is not just... I want you, Jeffrey, to be with me. It includes you, Jeffrey, but it's not about you. Sorry about that. It's not that there was anything he did this week to deserve that, but, you know, it's about this unity that we'll all be able to see his glory. I want you to know I can't wait. But this also tells us, does it not, we better start getting along with those people. Be good to go ahead and start getting along with those people here and now. Because you're going to be standing right next to them forever. (laughs) This prayer reveals Jesus' deepest longings before he was crucified. And you know what his deepest longings were before? It was for you. And I I just can't get over the, the visual on a page of Jesus Christ before he went to the cross praying for me. You just heard Jesus Pray for you before he was dying. My Father, I want those that you've given to me to be with me where I am. Robert Murray McShane in his sermon on this passage says, In truth, Christ cannot lack you. You are his jewels, his crown. Heaven would be no heaven to him if you who were given to him were not there. We sang earlier about what my soul craves. Let me tell you something. Jesus craves your presence in heaven with all the saints. I am praying for you. Is a great thing you can tell somebody. Intercessory prayer It's so important. One of the chief ministries ongoing right now of our Savior Jesus is the ministry of intercessory prayer for me and you. We see a foreglimpse of that in John 17 when he prayed for us. But we read it in Romans 8.32 and Hebrews 7.25. Who is he that condemns Jesus Christ who died? More than that, who was raised to life. More than that is at the right hand of God and is also now interceding for us. This is a good thing, in other words. It's a blessing. Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save completely those who come to to God through Him because He always lives in order to intercede for them. And here's what He is praying so urgently, among other things. But here's what he is praying so urgently before the throne. For us to be one so that his love and his glory will be revealed. Because that would be the simplicity of the gospel lived out in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would grant us that simplicity 
who you are, second person of God, what your mission was, what it means to us, that we would be one, that your love would be known, that your glory would be seen. And not just for us, but for those who will believe because of our message. Glorify yourself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.